Welcome back to another episode of GEMS Podcast with Genesis Amaris Kemp, where the core pillars are to educate, inspire, and motivate. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this segment. Hey, and welcome back to another segment here on GEMS Podcast. I want to thank you so much for tuning back in. With me today is a special guest, Terry Brown, and you already know me, the founder and host, Miss Genesis Amaris Kemp. So you are in for a treat. Terry has been a peer coach since 2009. She has a special interest in helping members with childhood trauma and criminal justice involvement, as well as those in the LGBTQIA plus community. And today, Terry's going to be walking us through um, the environment that she grew up in was very toxic and she's going to talk about um the her suffering from the effects of childhood trauma for years and how she navigated that and helping others to do the same so without further ado please welcome terry brown hi genesis thanks for having me on your show i've been looking forward to this my pleasure, Terry. And before we uh, dive into more of your background and how you ended up navigating such a hard, a hard situation, because there are some people who never really get over childhood traumas unless they deal with them and deal with them in a way that is very copious, as well as getting past the denial that it did happen. I want to give you a chance to connect with the audience in a fun and personal manner that is lighthearted before we dive into a heavy topic so are you ready I'm ready so there are two options you could do an icebreaker or a rapid fire 10 question game what are you in the mood for uh icebreaker (laughs) okay we're breaking the ice with Terry (laughs) I want you to share something crazy that you have done in your life or a fun and interesting fact about yourself I took up riding a motorcycle late in life. I was 51. Oh, wow. Yeah, late bloomer with that. So did you pick a specific uh, motorcycle, like a Harley or anything? I did. (laughs) Harley Davidson. Um, It was a 1200 Sportster was my first bike. I didn't start down low and work my way up. I started there because once you learn how to ride, you can ride anything. So Hmm. I'm challenging myself. That is super, super cool. So whenever you got into riding, were you intimidated or did you have like other friends of yours that were that um, were riding? I'll tell you what. So I rode on the back of a lot of them through the years, but um, I was uh, I was afraid to get my own because I was afraid of getting hit. Uh, this couple across the street from us, they rode their own bikes. And one day I was outside and they left and I seen Angel on hers. And I'm like, I want to ride my own motorcycle, right? So that, and I had a fear of getting hit. So that evening uh, I prayed to have the fear lifted. The next morning I got up and I went and bought a motorcycle. I didn't know how to ride it, but my, my friend Carl across the street, uh, you know, we rode it back and I was in the back and I lived on a street where it dead ends, so there wasn't a lot of traffic. So I just learned first gear, second gear, turning around and all that, and then, you know, started riding. Uh, one of my best trips I did was in 2016. I did like 3,000 miles by myself. That was really challenging, and, and I, I, 
conquered it, and I did. I did a lot for my self-esteem to, to do that. I loved it. Wow, and thank you so much for sharing that because I haven't really been on the back of a motorcycle, but here in the Texas area, Austin particular, we rode these, I guess they're called choppas, uh, the bikes, and we rode those kind of like as a excursion throughout the Austin area. And I was like, oh, this is nice. But then first getting on, because I'm very petite and um, <laughs> and small. And so when I got on, I was like, okay, is this the right size for me? Or how does it go? And then once I got, got going, I was like, ah, oh, this is nice. Right, yeah. But I don't know about riding a, like an actual one, like on the like mass roads and stuff, because here, Texas drivers drive very crazy, and I've seen some motorcycle fatalities, and that kind of just made me have irks, because it's not about you on the bike, but it's about also the other drivers who are not conscientious for mo- motorcyclists. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and when, you're, when you're riding, you have a lot. You have your front view, you have peripheral, you're clutching, you're shifting, you're braking, you're looking behind you. You're, you're doing a lot. Um, and most accidents, believe it or not, happen around town. Once you run on a highway or interstate, it's less uh, chances of, of hurting yourself. But you got to watch out for the other guys. And, and, and with that, there's a lot of people that are on motorcycles that should not be on motorcycles. So, you know. Amazing. And thank you for sharing that uh, fun and interesting fact. And now let's dive in to the heavy part of the conversation, which is the main segment. And it's you talking about growing up in a toxic environment, but also dealing with childhood trauma. So give us an overview of how you grew up, Terry, because sometimes a lot of people don't necessarily like going back to where they started from because they feel like they're at their point of arrival. But in my opinion, I feel like going back to the past sometimes is curating for the future success that you have, because even though you went through a breakthrough, it broke you, but you made it through. And even though you were tested, you have a testimony, or even though you were in a hell of a mess, it became your message where it launched you to help other people navigate the things that you went through. So if you didn't go through certain things, you wouldn't have the strength, the courage, and the ability to help someone that may be going through something else, even though it may not be a exactly the same you have some commonalities and some parallel to help them find strength and courage to let them know that it's okay and I made it through and so can you yeah yeah and you you know you hit on something connection is the key it it, it really is um so I grew up in Oakland California um San Francisco Bay Area and and Oakland those are not familiar it's a very rough town I mean it's it's really bad uh I grew up uh, around murder, rape, gangs, drive-bys, incest, molestation. I mean, you name it. It was just bad. And um, inside my home wasn't much better. I was adopted, too, which I'll kind of get into it for a minute. Um, but uh, there was beatings. Um, there was vulnerable um, times. There was um, mental abuse, verbal abandoned issues, lack of nurturing. Um, And on top of it, I started getting molested when I was like six, seven years old. And, you know, that's something that we just don't talk about. So I guess if we don't talk about it, it means it didn't happen, right? 
so when I was about 11, um, I started smoking pot. Um, it either took away those crappy feelings I was having or it made me feel something else instead of feeling what I was feeling. Um, by the time I was 12 years old, um, it got worse. And, um, and I want to say, too, I'm very raw. I'm very transparent. I talk about everything. I, I don't have any secrets. Um, so I'm, tw I'm 12 years old, and 30-year-old men are having sex with me. Okay, why is that happening, number one? Um, but that's, that's something that everyone just did. You didn't talk about anything, and maybe, maybe you'll like me. Maybe you'll love me, you know, whatever. Um, then harder drugs came in. Um, I quit going to school, hard time. Uh, started doing cocaine. Um, by the time I was 20, was 21, 22, I was violently raped. Um, to the point of my um, head being busted open. Uh, because, you know, rape is, is a form of violence and control. And it started out a beautiful, beautiful day. I, I went over to San Francisco and was trying to find myself because I knew when I was five or six years old that I was like girls, but I didn't understand that because I'm six. You know, that's what you don't know. And um, had a great day, had a great day, and um, headed back to, to Oakland. And um, I didn't get a cab because I wanted to save money. So I rode on the bus. It was about a 40-minute ride. And, and, and so I go get off my stop, and this guy had been watching me. So, it, you know, it went down, and um, the cops did come. Someone called the cops and um, went to the hospital. They did do a rape test, the hair on your head, the pubics, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so when I was going home, an officer brought me home. I was staying at my mom's temporarily, and, and I came through the front door, and she was sitting on her bed where she always sits looking at the TV, and it's like 5 in the morning. And my hair used to be really long and curly. It's just thick, thick hair. Shaka Khan. Think of Shaka Khan. That's my hair. And it was blood, you know, all in it. And, uh, and I says, Mom, um, I just got raped. And she looked at me, and um, she didn't say anything. She didn't do anything. If ever I needed my mother in my life, it was, it was at that moment. And, Let's uh, pause there really quick, um, Terry, because you um, divulged a lot of information there, and I want to give the audience a chance to process it. But I'm going to pick up where you said you told your mom, and she didn't do anything about it. And audience, I wonder if when she told her mom, her mom was just maybe in shock or we don't know where her mom her mom's mindset or mind frame was whenever she just heard the news that her daughter had went through something horrific or gruesome as rape or maybe she didn't necessarily have the words to um, resonate with where you were coming from so she thought silence was you know good whereas in my opinion, silence is just as bad as not speaking up or advocating for someone in your life that has just went through something traumatic because it was something that was not pleasurable. It was like losing a piece of you, a piece of your soul was taken away senselessly by something you had no control over. And that's hard because by that point you were 12, right? 
oh, 22 when that happened. So you were 20, you were 22. But leading up to that, you already had some traumatic experiences, you were going through different numbing processes, from pot to doing other drugs and other stuff. And then you were already being violated by men who were significantly older than older than you. So that's also another, another factor and layer. So then whenever you had this traumatic rate where your head was busted open, a man was watching you. Luckily, someone was smart enough to call the cops and intervene because depending on where you grow up, some people are like, oh, that's not my business. I'm not going to interfere or whatnot. And they could be conditioned by societal norms and et cetera. So I just kind of wanted to like pause there and really let the audience marinate on that because these things are really happening day in and day out. But if no one is being bold to talk about it like Terry is, then we are doing our girls as well as men a disservice because men are being raped too. So I want to make this on both sides here. And I feel like we need to be open to having these transparent and hard conversations. Yes, they are hard and it may be difficult to talk about it, but who knows how you can save somebody's life by just being raw, real, vulnerable, and transparent. Sharing this information and how you navigate it through this, Terry, can definitely help somebody who may have gone through this that has held held it in for so long because they felt guilty, they felt shame, they felt remorse, they felt like maybe it's something that I did or et cetera, or they felt like if I talk about it, who's going to believe, believe me because maybe it's the way I dress because I've heard some people say, well, that, that woman or that girl, she's dressing fast. Look how she's dressing. She's just asking for it. When in actuality, she may not have a role model in her life that tells her how to value her body and how to dress a certain way. And just because she's dressed a certain way does not mean that a man should push himself onto her based on how she has chosen to dress. So I want to, um, I want you to jump back in there, Terry, and I hope that commentary was helpful. Yeah, but I want to ask you this too. If you see, if you think it has any value to it, um, so I was adopted at six months. My biological, and I'll keep it really brief. Okay. Who uh, gave me up for for adoption? She it was found out that she was lying, um, that she was raped by two light skinned black men who smelled good and sound like they at least had a college education. So by that I was placed in a black family. Now the reason I'm telling this is for a very valid reason. It's a cultural. My my mother was was I mean my father was was white, of course white man and me and my mother was black. And so I grew up in in a, in a black culture with a lot of things were not talked about. It was keep shoving things. And um so I was a very confused child in, in more ways than one. And um and also, uh, my mother grew up in Arkansas where there's nine kids. I don't think there was a lot of lovey-dovey, kissy-hugging going on. There was a lot of kids. I don't think that she knew how to be uh, loving, kind, and generous, and, and, and nurturing because maybe she didn't get it. So do you think that I should talk about that or, or not? Um, I think it does play a factor to a sense. And the reason why I say that, um, if the way I grew up, I, I do identify as 
um, Af African American and Black, but my parents are foreigners. So my mom is West Indian and my dad is also Caribbean. So he was from Curacao right off the tip of Venezuela. So some people say South American or some people say Caribbean. So growing up in a home that is not traditionally a Black American family is different than how um, some of my friends who are truly um, Black Americans or some people say African Americans because certain things they dismiss. And I feel like whenever you dismiss certain things, it does not allow the society and the culture to heal because certain things are getting repressed versus brought to the limelight where you could actually have a conversation that will employ the healing journey to take place. Mm -hmm. So I, it is a cultural thing. Where do you want to do with that or anything? I think you could hit on it um, because it is a part of your journey and it's a part of your culture. And I think it's a part of your story. Okay. Yeah. So um, let's let's dive back into the story. So your mom didn't say any, anything uh, whenever you told her that you had just gotten raped. How did you feel in that moment your younger self, because that can either, either cause you to retreat and keep more things inside, or it could cause you to want to open up and do other things to cause um, you to numb the pain based on what you were feeling. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, um, <clears throat> I came through the front door, and my mother was sitting where she normally sits, and, and I told her I had been raped, and and she didn't respond um, verbally, emotionally, physically. Um, she was just silent. And, and I did not know what, what to do with that. So I uh, went upstairs to my old childhood bedroom, and, and I cried. And, and I was in a lot of pain because this guy, after he hit me, um, knocked me down, he grabbed me by my ankles, and, and he was banging my head on, on the concrete. And I could just feel the blood pouring down my face. So my body was in a lot of pain. Um, it started out to be just a beautiful day, and it, it didn't end very beautiful. It was a lot of very painful evening. Um, now I, I'm angry at the world. At 22, I am very angry at my environment. I'm very angry at the world because the first 22 years of my life was filled with with a lot of pain and anger. <clears throat> so with that, I I went down crack alley, as I call it, in, in the early 80s when crack first came on the scene. It, uh, it, it destroyed a lot of people. It, um, it had me do things that I told myself I would never do. I, I crossed lines. Uh, one particular trap house I was in at the time was very uh, dirty and filthy and garbage in it and so forth and i had i i spent about thirty dollars if i recall and and i ran out because that's what you do with crack cocaine it's you're constantly chasing the high and um, I, I asked this one guy um could he just you know pump me off twenty dollars because i was a good customer and uh, and he looks at me and he says you let me fuck you and i'll give it to you wow okay let, let's pause there. So you, um, since that incident happened when you were 22, 
it led you to being angry at the world. So then you went through another numbing process and you got on crack and cocaine and you were chasing, you were chasing the high and it came to a point where you didn't have the money to get your supplies. And the dealer said, if you let me blank with you, I'm just going to clean it up just in case for the younger audience that may listen into this segment. Cause, um, and I'm sure that also took you back to a period where, you know, where you didn't have control in a sense. And did it feel like whenever he made that statement that you were almost reliving a part of that trauma again? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was a part of it. It, it was something out of my control because the control, the, the drugs had taken over control. And so. Another thing I want to talk about is, um, as you were going through this part, did anyone step in who was a trusted, a trusted friend or someone that knew you to say, Terry, I want to get you some help? No. No. So you had to go through this on your own. So. Did anything or said anything because that's what people, I think, were accustomed to. And do you think that it was also a product of of your environment growing up in Oakland, California, and also being a foster child? Most definitely. So at what point, because I know we're, um, we're approaching the time commitment, at what point did you feel that you had a wake up call where you said, my life is going down a path that I personally do not want to be on anymore because you started to see who Terry Brown was and you started to see there's more to life than me going through these um, senseless emotions and et cetera, because I want to, and the reason why I ask this question is I want to let somebody know who is listening or watching this video that even though you may have been molested, even though you may have been in an abusive home, an abusive relationship with a narcissist, or felt like you had no control of your life, there is a point where you can take the control back and clean your life up and make your life better than what it is. Situations happen to us, but they also happen for us, but you have to be willing to break it break the weeds off at its root so they don't grow back and contaminate you. Right. And that happened years going up. At 37, I'd already moved to a different state. So that's where that started. Um, Can we do like a cliff note version there and talk about the transitioning there? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Yeah. When I was uh, 37 years old, um, I moved to, uh, well, 33, I moved to South Dakota and, um, I, I started getting numerous DUIs. Um, I managed to get seven of them in, in four years. And I went to prison twice because of those. And, you know, why why didn't I figure it out after the second one, the fourth one, the fifth one? I've been to prison. The fact was my irrational thinking. My irrational thinking kept telling me, it's not that bad. You've done it before. You can do it again. I'd start over because that's what I did. I finally, at 37 years old, sitting in prison on a five-year number, I told myself, I can't do this anymore. Something has to change. And that's when the change started for me on my road to recovery. 
Wow. So at 30, at 37 years old, the change happened at the road to recovery, but it took you having seven DUIs to really wake up. And I want to talk about the number seven. Seven is a symbolic number, and this is not to be religious or spiritual, but seven is the number of completion in numerology. And eight is the number of um, new beginnings from a biblical and religious standpoint. And whenever you said it took seven times, sometimes people who are going through strongholds and their mental strongholds, um, it keeps them in a state where they're going through bondage because you may not see the light at the end of the tunnel, but it has to take something inside of you breaking to make you have that aha, that realization and that light bulb turn on, or it has to take someone that's close to you, like an advocate or a sponsor, or someone who knows you and they care enough about you to tell you the hard truth, but you didn't have that. So it took you having to do the work internally in order to break those strongholds and that bondage and those ties that was keeping you in a um, pattern that was conditioning you to repeat, repeat, and repeat over and over. Right. Um, and, and with that, I, um, I've never been a religious person, but I'm very spiritual. And on the grounds in the prison, they have sweat lodges, if people are familiar with those. And uh, I wanted to try it. And so I went into it. It was uh, the first part was getting hard just to withstand the heat. Mm-hmm. But I did something I hadn't done in a long time. I started praying to have the, the with the heat, and it started you know, going away. And I thought, okay, well, that's working. So at that point, I prayed to God, to the universe, to whatever, to take the drugs and alcohol away from me. And at that moment, I had a weird, intimate, beautiful experience where something just went all inside of me. And I just started crying because I was so overwhelmed. And that hole that I had been trying to shove anything and everything in there, Mm-hmm. finally got connected and I knew when I left out of prison I would never drink or drug again in my life and I haven't it's been 24 years wow congratulations Terry I'm so proud and just to hear your story of what you went through from childhood up until adulthood at 37 where 37 was your turning around it was your coming out experience where you became a new Terry but it took you going through the dark seasons in life in order for the pit to turn into your palace and now here you are you're free you're clean you're on a road to recovery and you're helping others do the same so I want to throw you an audible here and we're going to lump it with the call to action what is your call to action for the audience whenever they hear your story or they may know someone that's going through something similar that you went through or they may have gone through this but they kept it inside for so long because they didn't feel empowered to talk about it because they felt that shame guilt and remorse Peer goes a long way, and that's what we do at Faces Together. Is that we are pure people in recovery, and we connect with people who are struggling. And whenever I'm teaching someone, um, I let them know a little bit of my story, and that's when they feel as though they can start opening up because you did it too. You went through it as well, and you're having a great life. I'm like, yeah, it, it's a lot. It's work, 
few things you got to do is put the instant gratification on the back burner and you got to humble yourself. And that is hard for anyone to do those two things, uh, addiction or not. And uh, so relaying my story, Genesis, is, is the key for the connection. Once you connect, usually you can help someone. And so I share my story because most of the people I work with are come from childhood trauma. It's, it's kind of a given, especially when you've been incarcerated numerous times. And so sharing my story helps people to start healing. Uh, Faith It Together has been around since 2009. Uh, peer coaching has been around for quite a long time. We didn't invent it. But I fell in love with the, uh, when I first heard about the organization, and I've, I've been with them since 2009. And um, if you want to have more information on peer recovery coaching, you can go to wefaceittogether.org, and there's a button right there that you can hit to, to get you paired up with someone. Amazing. And Terry, please um, send me those links because I want to include both of them in the show notes. And for anyone listening and they want to learn more of your story and go deep diving further, because I know we couldn't do everything chronological due to time commitment. I want you to plug your contact information if you have a website or where you primarily hang out on social media. And this information will also be in the show notes as well, Terry. WeFaceItTogether.org. Phone number is 605-274-2262. We also have a Facebook page on Face It Together. Is Facebook your primary outlet social media-wise? Yes, it is. Okay, awesome. So audience, WeFaceItTogether.org is the website. And then um, Facebook is the primary social media outlet. All of those information will be in the show notes along with the other organization that Terry mentioned. I'm going to make sure I link that as well. So you could share this info with someone that may be going through it, or maybe you're going through it and you want to do some research before you feel like you're ready to talk about it with with someone else. And don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, and follow. We're on 40 plus platforms. And you could also see this video on our YouTube channel by going to Gems with Genesis Amaris Kemp for more info. And lastly, but not least, I want to thank each one of you for tuning in on a regular basis to support the guests that I bring into the community to talk about topics that are educational, inspirational, and motivational, while we also cover diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And even though this was a hard topic, it was necessary because there are so many people who are going through some form of trauma and they are ready to heal, but they may not necessarily have the blueprint on what that looks like to begin their healing journey. So if that is you, you have Terry that you could go to, you have me that you could come to, where I do have a business and I work with clients on visionary coaching and et cetera, because you're not in this by yourself. There's always help out there, but you also need to be open to receiving the help and also asking for the help. Asking for help is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength because it's giving, getting you over that hurdle so you can live life free, whole, and optimal. So until the next segment, peace, love, and lots of blessings. Have yourself an amazing day. 
Thank you for listening to another segment of GEMS Podcast. Hope you enjoyed this recording. Make sure you like, comment, share, and subscribe to GEMS Podcast on your audio platform, as well as our YouTube channel, GEMS with Genesis Mars Kemp. We would love for you to be a sponsor, so please reach out via email at GEMS, G-E-M-S, with W-I-T-H, Genesis, G-E-N-E-S-I-S, Amaris, A-M-A-R-I-S, Kemp, K-E-M-P, at gmail.com, where your brand, your swag, your services can be here on GEMS Podcasts.